Hello, and welcome to Lots and Familiar, the show that remembers that the Smiths Crisps give away octopusy watches, played the James Bond theme twice in a row, linked by a single non-canonical beep. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seemed to, is podcast host John Rain. John, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, I do Smirsh Pod, which was James Bond related and now obviously has gone the way of Kane, Michael Kane that is. And we've just started the second series, so we've just done a Get Carter episode and we've got another one coming out shortly, which this will probably age badly by the time this comes out. And that's what I'm up to at the moment, really, apart from having a cold. Okay, well, I hope that doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the experience too much. But looking at your first choice, I doubt that anyone would ever have done the Titan Digital Watch that played the theme from this, but... Let's have a listen to the theme anyway. Okay, well that's a tune that's burnt into my memory and used to really resurface in the middle of A-levels, I seem to remember, so I'm eternally grateful to that show for that. John, what was that? That was your mother wouldn't like it. When I was a kid, I grew up listening to lots of comedy and my dad would play me sort of Hancock, Round the Horn, that sort of thing. And then suddenly in the mid-80s, someone in both BBC and ITV world went, we should do something like that for kids. And BBC had Fast Forward, which I was nearly going to pick. I was obsessed with that. But ITV had a sort of interested me more because your mother wouldn't like it was staffed entirely by kids so it felt like it was something that it's sort of like something you were part of much the same way when you watch Grain Chill when you're a kid you think oh great I'm gonna go to Grain Chill one day your mother wouldn't like it I was just like oh I'd like to hang around with these people it was very anarchic it was sort of what the 80s was all about. You know, the young one's kind of spirit was in there. Uh, and it had a couple of spin-offs as well. The interesting thing there was it was actually the kids all came from something called the Central Junior Television Workshop, which was Central yeah. Television set up a kind of initiative to recruit raw talent young kids from neighbouring schools and so on. And mm. you know, throw basically throw them at the wall, not literally, I hope, and say, let's see if a programme was out of this. And the other thing that they were all involved with, all the kids in this, was they played pupils in Harvard. Brick House, which was a, a central sitcom. I'm sure people are sick and tired of me mentioning this. It was a central sitcom <laughs> that definitely wasn't for kids. No. It was on much later in the evening, but it was a bit too anarchic. It got taken off the air, and it's never been shown from that day to this. But loads of the cast of Your Mother Would Like It were running round in the background of that. So that really that really underlines exactly what sort of a show it was, I think. Yeah, yeah, it felt quite dangerous at the time. I mean, I've subsequently caught a couple of uh, episodes on YouTube, and it does seem very tame now. But as a, what, what would I have been? It was about 85, was it? Yeah, 85 to 88, I think. Okay, so I was about, you know, I was eight years old. So to me, that just seemed, it just seemed reckless and dangerous. My mum my literally wouldn't like it, but she did, actually. That was fine. And and Loaf from that, uh, there was a character in it called Loaf. He was kind of like this sort of idiotic uh, lead. He was my hero when I was a kid. I thought he was the funniest person on television. Well, there were also bits in it. There's a bit of a fallacy grown up that Jan Samarco, who was Adrian Mole, was in Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. And he wasn't. Well, I actually was. No. was there were bits of it called, was it The Wimp Reports? Where yeah. they were written by Sue Townsend and they featured Simon Schatzberger, who was the stage Adrian Mole. So I think that's yes. where it's come from. He of the Yellow Pages advert. Yes, that's right. It's just possible yeah. you could have saved his 
life. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the idea that Sue Townsend was writing for this anarchic program that was otherwise written by uncontrollable kids is quite astonishing, really. And yeah. I do wonder kind of how much collaboration there was between her and the cast. I'd love to know if that was the case. Oh, I'd love to know. I am sort of Twitter friends with Ian Kirkby, who played Loaf. So I might ask him that. Because the interesting thing is that two of the people from Your Mother Wouldn't Like It went on to feature heavily in Dick and Dom in the Bungalow, which, again, I mean, I, I was way too old for it and didn't have kids at the time, but I am told by people who had kids at the time, it has that same kind of anarchic feel to it as well. Well, I didn't have kids at the time, and I watched it religiously. <laughs> I've seldom laughed as much as I did when they did Tally Addicts as Mucky Addicts. Yes. <laughs> It's the same spirit. I mean, I've seen bits of Dick and Dom, and it has that same, really, you know, for naughty kids, humour, if you know, if, if you like. That's why I loved Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. It just had that anything could happen, and anything, it felt like it could all explode at any moment. And of course, you had Palace Hill as well, which was a great send-up of Grange Hill. Yeah, that became its own series eventually, didn't it? With, uh, yes. Am I right in thinking that, because I kind of stopped watching Children's ITV by then, but I saw bits of it. There was a character who was Margaret Thatcher who'd come forward in time and yeah. be made to go back to school. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, and the girl that played her was amazing. Again, it was just really clever and fun and just unlike anything else that was on at the time. I think before Your Mother Wouldn't Like It, there was something called, was it Behind the Bike Sheds? There was, which was Tony Slattery wrote and was yes. the main adult in that, yeah. Which kind of, again, had that same sort of thing, but Your Mother Wouldn't Like It was like fully formed. As I say, it just reminded me of the young ones and it was not far off of the young ones finishing, so it had that same spirit. And they were also one step ahead in the, if I remember rightly, there was a character called, was it Mr. Briefcase? case who was from the ministry of wholesome television yes come in and pull scorn on what they were doing that's right yeah yeah very pythony that isn't it and um they had sort of he-man parodies as well that were quite good if i remember right oh, i can't Tweet remember Man. that's right that's yes. it yeah <laughs> and there was also around this time a program that nobody remembers in a similar children's itv time slot called stop that laughing at the back where i think it was the Millies, the comedy troupe that had Joe Unwin and Richard Thomas, amongst other people. Right, I've no I memory of that. It's them, but all I remember is the voice saying, stop that laughing at the back at the start. If I don't remember any sketches, it can't be comedy cold, I don't think. No, I mean, the other one I really wanted to pick, but there's absolutely no way. I can't find any footage of any of it. It's something called Jelly Neck, which no one remembers. It was so funny. It was grown-ups pretending to be kids, and it was all very um, sort of weird, like the camera would be just like focusing on them where they're dressed as it was like blue hills remembered but for kids see i would have gone for the golden wonderland advert <laughs> well that's actually give me a neat link into your second choice because they're both foodstuffs that aren't good for you well let's just have a listen to a piece of music and then we'll try and work out what it is <laughs> a record I'm willing to bet nobody remembers Disco E.T. by Ego though I can't really see many sort of well-dressed John Travolta types posing with one finger painted red pointing in the air but it's not actually that you've chosen John why is it? E.T. Biscuits right I seem to remember that these weren't especially exciting biscuits they were just standard biscuits but a bit space yeah well they were cola flavoured were they actually cola flavoured though or was that just a claim that they made? 
Well, when I was a child, I thought they were space flavored. They were just custard creams that were like orange and blue and green or something. And they tasted like a bit kind of fizzy and cokey. And yeah, they were very exciting. But what did they have to do with E.T.? That's what I couldn't figure out at the time. And I can't figure out now. But I don't remember any bit in the film. Admittedly, I tried to forget as much about the film as I possibly can. But anything related to biscuits at all? I know he had sort of smarty things. And I think they briefly marketed a variation on them. But just no biscuits. It's not the obvious choice, really. I mean, there were other tie-in biscuits. Remember there were Star Wars ones where they're a bit like the shortbread sport biscuit things, but in the middle they had the kind of brown drizzle that might have been Darth Vader crossed with the Keep Britain Tidy Man. <laughs> but that at least made some effort of tying into Star Wars. I just don't understand what biscuits full of presumably hazardous levels of colouring. Because in those days, there were, you know, we had none of these namby-pamby EU regulations stopping us being poisoned by green dye in food. So mm. they must have been just horrible and nothing to do with E.T. The obvious choice really is a fudge because it's a finger and you could have put like a little red strawberry jam thing on the end. But how often did you have these? Because I imagine they were probably, they probably weren't cheap and they were probably sort of the kind of thing that was relegated to a special treat only. They were definitely a very special treat. I only had them, perhaps that's probably why I remember them so happily is that I only had them on rare occasions. But they were always, I think they came in like a pack of three, much like something else. And they also apparently had the picture card in every pack. Now, I'm guessing, yeah. was every time, was it E.T. kissing Drew Barrymore, which is the image that seems to be used on everything. There's a very bizarre story about E.T. biscuits, which is, this was around the time I first started getting Doctor Who magazine. Yeah. And there's a famous thing about, there's an advert for E.T. biscuits in there. And because of the way it was designed, it was next to a picture of Michael Goff as Chancellor Heddin from Mark of Infinity. And it looked, you know, if you're being silly, you could say it like he was endorsing them. But it later turned out, John Nathan Turner, the showrunner at the time, who was very paranoid about things like this, did actually complain bitterly that it looked as though this minor character played by an old man in the <laughs> kind of the B storyline of four episodes was encouraging fans to go out and buy biscuits for a rival sci-fi brand and he's genuinely worried that this was going to happen and so how paranoid and i know he was marked down at the bbc as a potential communist and he had one of those symbols on his file and so on but even so how paranoid do you have to be to think that is likely to happen i'm very surprised jnt didn't bring out any doctor who biscuits in, you know, his retribution. Well, I know apparently there was going to be Peter Davison lemonade, which got as far as labels being printed and never went any further. Because I remember the, the comics you got in the Watsits when Colin Baker became Doctor Who. Yes, with the colourised versions of the strips from DWM, which yeah. at the time, I'm sure people saw them and thought, oh, I've already got them. And now they're probably worth a fortune. I didn't like them. I didn't like, I've told this story before, but I didn't like Colin Baker when he started as Doctor Who and I stopped watching. If Colin is listening, I have I've become a grown-up and gone back and re-watched his ones and I've enjoyed them more than McCoy's so there you go there were McCoy's crisps of course which right I used to go to the Doctor Who local group around the time that they came out people used to eat those in a kind of misguided act of solidarity <laughs> almost <laughs> thinking it won't be cancelled if I eat a whole pack of McCoy's oh when I was a kid there was a baker down the road from me called the baker's oven so I should have gone there out of solidarity for Colin <laughs> and Tom do you remember any more biscuits particularly tired ones that have faded from view i remember crisps there was a, there was a, there was jaws 2 crisps the 
What? Jaws 2 crisps. How did that work exactly? I don't know, because I tell you what, when I started senior school in 1988, my newsagent was still selling them. What was the sell-by date? <laughs> I don't know, but the front cover was a woman water skiing, so I'm guessing it was actually a confused brand. Although there was a water skier getting chased in Jaws 2, isn't there? Because she's the one who blows up her own boat. Yeah, with the Jaws head coming out of the water behind her, and they're just called Jaws 2. Were they in the shape of a fin, or of that raised mouth image? The snack that bites back. They were barbecue beef or spicy tomato crisps. <laughs> His favourite. I mean, I, I can argue with the barbecue beef because it's meat, but I'm not so sure about spicy tomato. But they were made by Sooner Foods. In the earlier edition, we did have the Jaws board game as well. Well, I say board game. It was just a plastic shark that you had to stop eating you. Oh, yes, I remember that. Why do yeah. they market so much Jaws stuff at kids? I don't understand I it. I don't know. I remember having a Jaws, a, a rubber Jaws that you could put in the bath, and it was completely empty inside, so you could fill it with water and make it spew. Well, that said, you have alleged that there were ET products based at adults. And let's, <laughs> let's leave it there. Okay, well, on the basis of what you said, I definitely wouldn't want to swap places with E.T., even if it was for charity. But this brings us around to your next choice. Let's just have a listen to one of the people involved in action. And now, this is the young lady who has agreed to uphold the other side of the bargain. She let me take a seat as a bank cashier, and now I've got to let her take over a bit of the show. So welcome, Helen Egan. presenting a bit of Wogan in 1992. John, why was she doing that? It was Trading Places Day. This made me feel like I was mentally ill for years because I'd say to people, do you remember Trading Places Day? And they'd be like, no. And I asked so many people, and I think you were the only person I'd ever come into contact with in my <laughs> adult life who went, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I do, but I mainly remember it because of that edition of Wogan. As I say, Terry had gone and worked in her bank for a bit, which I think was covered on whatever the evening news programme was at that yes. point. Then she turned up, presented a bit of Wogan, and introduced Lisa Stansfield, who looked absolutely baffled, like nobody had asked her to swap places. But what was the gist of Trading Places then? You know what? I think it was some sort of, you paid some sort of, it was like a telephone thing. You donated money, and you swapped jobs with someone? I don't know. I remember they gave away masks so you could wear like what it, what it was. And this is my memory. So it's probably wrong, but it was a cardboard mask and it covered up your face from your nose upwards. So you could put it on and you'd look like a traffic warden or a policeman or something like that. So it'd be a hat and the, the eyes. And I remember paying like a quid at school and wearing that mask in the afternoon. But obviously it wasn't a winner because it never, ever came back and no one remembers it. No, I mean, I had to really do some digging to find examples of what happened on the day. And I was really surprised. <laughs> I thought the first thing I would find would be Brucey swapping places yeah. with somebody. But no, no trace of him. All I could find out was Scylla Black became an ITM reporter <laughs> and did a report on a school. Actually, she was reporting on a school where a pupil had swapped roles with a headmistress. So apparently it went beyond celebrities. Barbara Windsor became a bus conductor. I'm sure she did that with a smile on her face and mm. cheerful throughout the day. Any room upstairs? Oh, <laughs> how did I miss that one? Richard and Judy apparently dressed as each other. Yes, I do remember, actually, Judy wearing a suit and Richard wearing some sort of dress, yes. But I've also, I've found some evidence, apparently Bob Hoskins launched it by 
dressing as Cher on ITV. Oh, that rings a bell, yeah. And there was a branch of the Royal Bank of Scotland where everyone dressed as Michael Fish. Now that, that dates it. Yes, it does. And also, apparently, a restaurant chain where everyone was Edna Reveridge, which, as much as I like Dame Edna, that's my idea of hell. This feels like a concept someone's had, but they, they have not put any rules in place. I seem to recall it was later subsumed into Red Nose Day itself. It was obviously yeah. set up to rival it, but it later became a facet of comic relief and then was quietly dropped well itv aren't involved with comic relief though are they or was this bbc i don't know it seems it seems to involve both of them so it's really quite confusing that's just fucking weird it really is (laughs) but if they brought it back now and you had the opportunity to swap places with a celebrity who would you choose dinage well fred dinage he doesn't do anything anymore does he well he does like um there's the local news down here I had no idea about that. I thought he was just rude to people on Gambit, and then that was it. That was all he ever did. No, no, he does the uh, local news. So, like, the kind of look east, but down here in um, Sussex. Yeah, it's either him or the Gaz Top. I hadn't given any thought to who I'd swap places with. Is is Catherine Tate going out with a celebrity at the moment? Cause... Is Catherine Tate going out with celebrity? Yeah, you know, I'd swap places with them, I suppose. But Oh, I see. Right, right, OK. Yeah. That joke fell a bit flat, didn't it? Yeah, I was confused. Were you an enthusiastic participant in things like Trading Places Day, or did they always make you run a mile? Run a mile, yeah. I, I do remember having, I think, because school's kind of a peer pressure thing. I remember Red Nose Days, we were always wearing our red noses. But with Trading Places Day, I do remember having some sort of mask on for the afternoon. I suspect it was like a policeman or something. Well, I have a really troubling memory of when they did the second Red Nose Day, which was that 1988 or 89, whichever one it was, you were allowed to pay to come into school dressed as a public figure. And so me being me, I did Marty Hopkirk, and nobody had a fucking clue what I was doing. But... (laughs) A boy in my class came in as Yasser Arafat. Oh, my God. Genuinely. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that happening now? Nothing was said to him the whole day. I remember people being quite excited about, oh, um, my mum's answering phones for Telethon this year. Oh, the ITV Telethon. I once watched, when I was, I think I was 15, I watched the entirety of one of them. I did as well. The novelty of just having got my own portable TV. Yeah. And I remember Shawaddy Waddy being on at two in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Best place for him. What is happening? Aspel wasn't a telethon. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember white sweaters with Telethon ninety two written on them. And an unmentionable was all over them as well. Oh yes, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. So yeah, you won't be seeing any clips of Telethon soon. Okay, well, from ITV Telethon to something they hyped that was possibly a bit more acceptable in polite society these days, but I'm not sure it's that much more watchable. But let's have a listen to a bit of it. Roger, mission control. Looks like smooth sailing from here on in. Who committed murder in space? There's something going on up there. Crowded together for five months. It is a situation in which relationships can be sorely tested. And have they been? I was uh, merely using a figure of speech. We've been all getting along quite well. T minus nine. Here's what really killed Ogodenarenko. T minus eight. What are you talking about, dead? Dead how? What dead? T minus seven. Guys! T minus six. There's a killer aboard that spacecraft. Murder in space. The countdown continues. 
on First Choice Super Channel. Okay, well, that's a trailer for Murder in Space, which I remember being really excited about and then not enjoying at all. So, John, tell us more about it. This, as you say, was hyped. And this was around the time when you'd have to buy Radio Times and the TV Times to have a complete picture of the television schedule. And I remember getting the TV Times that particular week or fortnight, wherever it was. And on the cover, it said the greatest murder mystery ever. And it was a picture of Michael Ironside, who I was a fan of from V. So I was excited about this. And I read in the TV Times that many different endings have been filmed and you could vote as to who the killer would be. And yes, like you, I sat down and tuned in to watch it. And my fucking Lord, it was dull. Yeah, because it was actually, it was a weird co-production between, I think, the National Canadian TV channel, Showtime in America, and Zenith North, who immediately oh afterwards made Biker Grove. <laughs> what were they doing in there? That's... I don't know. But yeah, it, it was a really, really heavily plugged thing. Yeah. And the weird thing was, I remember that obviously, I assume each country that showed it did their own wraparounds with their own hosts. Can you remember who we got over here? No. It's Annika Rice and Roger Cook. Oh, Roger Cook. So obviously he was there, you know, to, <laughs> because they needed somebody who could identify a space killer and bring them to justice. But, uh, he, he would not rest, would he, Roger Cook? What, what an odd choice, though. I don't really remember it, but I don't imagine there's much chemistry between them as hosts. They probably made Mick Fleetwood and Samantha Fox seem like the hitman and her. <laughs> it seems to me like Star Cops, but if it wasn't entertaining and on a really smeary NTSC conversion. But it was basically like um and then there were none but in space if i remember rightly and then there were no viewers i had a complete memory and this, this is again something martin bellum had in your your previous episode where you just remember something and then it turns out to not be true at all but i remembered that this was show some of this was shown in 3d and i remember getting glasses with the radio times but it, i don't i can't find that anywhere so i don't think that's true I don't remember it being, but I do remember we were on holiday when it was on, so it's conceivable that <laughs> there wouldn't have been forking out for extra 3D glasses. Yeah, there was definitely a programme around this time that was imported from America that was in 3D, and I don't know what it was. Ah, well, if anyone can shed any light on that, please do. But do you remember there was a tie-in paperback? At the back it had, even though the programme had been and gone, it had a form to enter a competition to say who you thought the killer was. It was the sort of book that every news agent I went in for years afterwards, there's a copy of it on that, you know that little carousel of books that you yes. have in news agents? There's yeah. always a copy of the Murder in Space tie-in novel. You did get to vote, as to, or you did get to phone in, didn't you, or something, about who the killer was at the end? Yeah, because there was a follow-up show where they revealed the answer. I, I, believe, uh, it, I believe it was a 90-minute film, and they showed 60 minutes of it, and then they showed 30 as part of this follow-on show. They obviously thought, as so often happens, in the 80s that space was enough to make it interesting yes and usually that's not the case no no it's the opposite there were so many films where there was nothing interesting about them but you're supposed to think ooh space and this, yeah. is, a, this is a prime example of it it's absolutely dreadful but there was all this hype all this excitement yeah, well, I think ITV must have thought, we've got a bloody massive hit here. We're going to market this. We've got American money, Canadian money, and all the money in the Northeast. We're going to market this. And then, of course, it turned out at the end that the uh, the two girls shot PJ in the face with a paintball gun. <laughs> 
was actually, when you think about it, it was a really early example, I suppose, of interactive TV. Yes. And the forerunner of, you know, the way everything now, you know, hinges on contributions from viewers. But you couldn't make it work in the postal days. I really, really think that. No, it, it just completely fell flat. The technology wasn't there. I mean, now it's so easy to do something like this. So easy. But then it just wasn't there. But it was a very brave idea. But it was just not very well, cons- not very well um, brought out at all. It was just too too boring. It was basically who shot JR in space, but with yes. all the campy qualities of Dallas. So yeah, with, with, yeah, one Michael Ironside can't save something. You'd need a you'd need a, a Michael Ironside and a couple of other people with charisma. But I seem to remember the cast. I haven't gone back and looked who's in it. But I don't think it was anyone who's now famous or anything. So no, they were all I had a look. They're all the sort of people who've been in one episode of every program that you've seen in the listings that you've never watched, like all the eight million Stargate spin-offs and each them will have been in it once it's that sort of thing yeah but it was produced by robert cooper who more recently has been responsible for the netflix dirk gently which is the polar opposite of murder in space it's absolutely yeah. brilliant i think he learned his lesson <laughs> yeah yeah i hope so i hope you don't have to phone it at the end to say who did it was it the dullest space theme thing you sat through as a youngster though i remember this being very disappointing because i remember getting very excited i was at the age where probably as an eight-year-old where i could read things like the tv times and radio times i remember being really excited about adrian mole starting because I'd, I'd read some of the book at school and this i remember reading all about this and thinking oh this is going to be fucking brilliant and oh man okay well we're sticking with getting excited about tv programs ahead of broadcast for your next choice because i was so looking forward to this for reasons i'll come back to when i saw it i wasn't that keen oh that's very sweet of you helzo no heavens above i'm just being objective come on. Nothing be above. <laughs> look you don't need this clive i mean just open your eyes look around you what you think you should screw somebody in the audience? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, hey, they're a bit enthusiastic. I think we're on to a... No, 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 Hello there, darling. No, no, no. Hello, nice bit of red stuff. You like red? Just don't say anything. Now, what about oh, Archive then? Here, what is, now is he a man or a mouse? And if he's a mouse, are you going to let him have a little nibble? <laughs> <laughs> There's another one. Hello there, lover. Hello there, lover. What's your name? Lynn. Lynn. I think you're in with Lynn. Hey, now, 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 what about our Clyde? Now, if he asked you for a date, would you give him one? Oh, hey. Come hey. on, come on, hands up. Who wants to sleep with Clyde? Okay, next, 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 Half of them are men as well. Nicely warmed up. Okay, everybody, let's just ask you this question, please. Hands up. Anyone. Anyone. Nick. Okay, well that was Helen Lederer, Clive Mantle and Nick Wilson in the trailer for... Hello Mum. Hello Mum. Now, like I said, this was kind of a spin-off from Radio 4's In One Ear, which is a live mid-80s show where it doesn't stand up really that well now, but at the time I found it really exciting to see, really edgy, and obviously it was transferring to TV... And it was going to be live as well. I thought it was going to be great. I wasn't very impressed, but did you like it? I did. Again, this is around, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is around the time of the kind of alternative comedy boom. So you had, you know, the Saturday Night Live, the comic strip, obviously. And you, these are the little outliers from those programs. Like, the only reason I watched this was because of Arnold Brown. He wasn't in it prominently, but he had these little monologues like Ronnie Corbett. Except they had his, he was on an armchair, but it was like six feet in the air or stuck to a wall, if I remember rightly. And I loved him because uh, he was my, one of my favourite episodes of The Young Ones is the um, Flood. And he does that little monologue, you know, about the Scottish Jewish person 
to stereotypes of the price of one and all that business and i just found him really funny i love it and he again used to be on saturday night live which is something i used to watch every week yeah so i watched it for him i think i might have known about nick wilton from fast forward and that was weird having someone from a children's sketch show then being on hello mum talking about and there's a moment from hello mum that i'll always remember when helen lederer calls him a pea brain and he goes oh right yeah so i've got a brain the size of a pea and she says no you're, it means your head's full of piss and I remember being so shocked that Nick Wilton <laughs> was being insulted and the word piss was used because he was in fast forward. But yeah, and this was the, my first encounter with Clive Mantle, who would become important in my life years later because he was the secret nuclear man that I didn't know about until I got older from Superman 4, obviously. Again, it was just that kind of slice of anarchy that was on TV at the time. And I have subsequently gone back and watched Hello Mum. And yeah, it hasn't stood up at all. But at the time, it was really exciting because it was like you. I'd not long had a portable telly in my room. So when I went to bed, I didn't really go to bed. I just watched telly until I got tired and went to sleep, which probably explains why I was so terrible at school. But yeah, this just felt kind of exciting. And there was the house band was in it as well. There was like um, Robin Driscoll, who was everywhere back then and has since retired to Beanland. And Richard Ranch, if I remember right, he was in here as well. So it was all the sort of seeds uh, and the outliers from things that were quite big at the time. Well, I think looking back, the reason I probably didn't like it was, as I say, I loved In One Ear. Mm. And I think it goes back to that thing we sort of lost now, where it used to be the case that sometimes you didn't even know what people on the radio looked like. Yeah. I mean, at point two, for example, I went to one of the recordings of Lionel Nimrod's Inexplicable World. Oh, yeah. Where none of the cast, especially Armando Yanucci, looked anything like I expected. <laughs> really weird. I imagined it was like a really sort of like tall bruiser, which is on the, on the on the basis of his voice. But the other one was when Joe Brown was on the Mary White House experience. I'd never seen her at that point. Mm. And I thought the stuff about being, you know, large and ungainly and so on was kind of a, a reverse joking. I pictured her as like a diminutive Smiths fan sort of girl. And yeah. I was quite surprised when I saw her. So sometimes it was like that. But I think in one ear, it had that real sense of anarchy on the radio when you were just hearing their voices. Yeah. It genuinely felt like anything could happen, like Radio 4 could literally fall off the air. And mm. then they're on BBC Two, and they're not very good at the running around being anarchic, really. Yeah. And it kind of shows, although, re-watching it in later years, I've come to appreciate it more, because they did take advantage of the fact that it was live, mm. with things like they held up signs saying, please notice us, did you see? Which mm. was BBC Two's review show at that time. And then it was given a really bad review by Ian Hislop, who I remember astutely said that it worked really well when they were just writing sketches that were shot through with their attitude, but when they thought, we've got to be alternative here, and that was what the sketches were predicated on, it just felt embarrassing. But they then started holding up signs saying, we were on Did You See? And then they reviewed an episode of Did You See on it. <laughs> and the other brilliant thing was, because Nick Wilton was in, as I mentioned earlier, Hardwick House. Yeah. And I've been trying to find this in the episodes online and i can't but the week it was taken off air he made a joke in hello mum about something to do with turning over for hardwick house uh. and that felt that really that was his act of defiance that was his two fingers of the furore looking back now i think can you imagine anyone being able to do anything like that now but nobody could stop them because it was live well nick wilton was a real hero of mine when i was a kid because he was in a lot then the satellite show as well that's it? right jesus christ yeah no he wasn't in jesus of nazareth <laughs> no 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 let's make that clear 
or, or was he not he wasn't jesus himself but yeah i mean as, as, as we started here like fast forward was important to me because it was a really silly sketch show for kids but it had the most sort of christmas cracker style jokes that were just terrible you know like there's someone at the door to see you know the cleopatra in the bath there's someone at the door to see oh they just tell them to toot and come in that kind of <laughs> joke you know and he was in that and he was great and it was him and it was i'm um, sorry i know what we're talking about that but it was him and it was andrew seacombe and uh, robert harley and obviously Florella Benjamin. And then to see him doing Hello Mum, it was just really strange. But again, I just thought, God, he's so good. And he, it never really happened for him, did it? He never really went beyond being a bit part player. No, I think I did a couple of years ago when a very long story, but Harbour House nearly came out on DVD and then didn't. And I was commissioned to write the booklet for it, which yes. you can actually find in one of my books if anyone's interested. I actually got to speak to Nick for that, mm. and he does pinpoint that as that could have been his big break. And it was derailed because he'd kind of planned on there being the projected second series of Hardwick House. Yeah. And he turned down a couple of things, including, I think, EastEnders. Oh, man. You know, he, he was a really talented guy, Nick Wilton, and it's a yeah. shame that... Yeah, a bit like the other David Copperfield, that he never really yeah, yeah. got the breaks that, you know, he should really have had. Well, David Copperfield made the terrible error of being in a show with two people who are about to go supernova. When you watch Three of a Kind now, he doesn't stand out, does he? Whereas Lenny and Tracy do really stand out. They're just too good for that format. What do you think of the others in Hello, Mum? Well, I'm trying to remember who else it was. It was Clive Mantle. I remember him being all right. I don't remember him really standing out very much. And Helen Leather. Yeah, I mean, she's always good. But there was also and this gets completely forgotten there were animated bits written by steve bell off of the guardian bloody hell i've no memory of those i've no memory of the animated bits at all they didn't really work in the same way that the animated bits in big train never really worked no i don't think they did either it just doesn't for some reason it just doesn't with the exception of monty python's flying circus where i think it was different anyway animated inserts in sketch show don't go but when i saw that you picked this i did go back and look at some of the listings for hello mum and i noticed a couple of interesting things one is that one of the writers was Paul Martin, who I ah, assume was yeah. Paul Merton. The other interesting thing was, this is absolutely brilliant, this. The first one, the billing for it, they say, they can't tell you what's going to be in it because it's live and topical, but mm. we'll be covering the events of the past week, including Terry Wogan, where is he now? <laughs> that did make me laugh. I just wish the series had been as good as that one gag. But... Yeah, I mean, it had its moments. And as I say, there's the episode I watched on YouTube, which I didn't watch all the way through, otherwise I would have noticed the cartoon bit probably. It just did, yeah, it didn't really stand up. Do you remember, a, do you, you know everything, so I'm going to ask you this because no one else remembers this. Jasper Carrot used to have a routine about a mole, and there was a cartoon of it. There was, yeah. Yeah, good. I'm glad you remember that. Because oh, that was very good. And the, the other cartoon I was obsessed with as a kid, which you can't get anywhere now, I, or unless they've released it on DVD, was the um, the guy who did Henry's Cat. What's his name? Bob? Bob Godfrey. Yeah, he did IKB. Well, Great, it was called, about Isambard Kingdom Brunel. It was about the life of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, I beg your pardon, uh, who was voiced by Richard Bryars. Obviously, the rhubarb connection there. But it's brilliant. It's got really, really good songs in it as well i'd love to it was on youtube for a while and it, it obviously got taken out it's worth checking out if anyone's interested because the songs in it are brilliant okay well speaking of songs and the things that felt like yours that were edgy that you weren't really supposed to be enjoying that brings us on to your last choice i'm just going to play a bit of music that i've got an enormous amount of fondness for hello frank simon here now today i've got my banjo right and i'm in a fantastic uh, recording studio because i've got uh, all my mates from mine coming round, and we're going to make a fantastic song called 
the oink gets oh, together. Don't forget to tell them what I'm Yes, I will tell them what you're playing in a minute. Yes, right, so just, just shut up, will oh. you? Because uh, we're just about to have some fantastic drums played by Harry the Head. Oh. Take it away, Harry. Brilliant. Right, now also on this uh, fantastic record, uh, we've got the bass guitar played by the one and only Roger Renzel. That's good. And, um, don't forget to shut up a minute. I'll tell them what you're doing in a minute because now we've got a dinosaur on the piano. I bet you didn't know a dinosaur could play piano, did you? Right. Okay, that's the Oink Get Together song by Frank Sidebottom. Really, go and listen to the full thing of that if you get a chance, because it is hilarious. So, John, tell us more about Oink. Oink was the best bloody comic in the world. I think it came out about 86, maybe. Uh, So I was nine, and I just saw it on the shelf. And I remember buying it and taking it home. And I remember reading it cover to cover and just thinking, this is the funniest thing. Because I just, it was almost like when you discover new music. Because I'd grown up reading Wizard and Chips, Beano, uh, Topper, all that kind of thing. And they suddenly started feeling like I was a bit too old for them. And then I saw Oink and I thought, this is it. you know. And I read it and I just thought, this is the most amazing thing. And it was full of brilliantly funny. There's the, the whole Mary Whitehouse thing at the time. They had a character called Mary Lighthouse who took exception to everything they did. The, the editor was a guy called Uncle Pig, who had a kind of like plastic visor for writing. And there was just lots of really, really funny little characters, like a like a horror. There was an alien. There was a guy who was just called Mr. Big Nose, who was annoying. <laughs> and again, it was the, going back to, this seems to be the theme of this podcast, is uh, this episode, I mean, is it had that kind of anarchic thing that appealed to you when you're just coming up to being 10 years old, you know, like, really really silly and dirty and grubby and as it turns out it was like the perfect boot camp for viz yeah i'm i've never been sure of the extent to which it was influenced by viz but it must have been surely i mean the weird thing was that i was at the age where i remember people reading both viz and oink in school Mm. so there was there was complete crossover i didn't know anything about viz at this point i only discovered viz through my older brother and that was probably in the sort of late 80s. Yeah, because that, at that point you still had to ask for it under the counter in the Virgin Mary yeah. store. Well, my brother used to keep his copy under his mattress. I used to do that as well. <laughs> because there was obviously words in there that we would never say in front of our parents. There was a character called, literally called you know, Terry Fuckwit. <laughs> we used to call him Terry F-wit to, you know, for censoring ourselves. But yeah, Oink, uh, you know, I didn't know about Viz, so I read Oink. And when I discovered Viz years later, I was like, oh, OK. So it felt like a natural progression going from the Beano to Oink, then Viz. And I, I still read Viz now and I'm 41. So it's something that stayed in my life is enjoying really stupid comics. Well, one of the interesting things about it was that in a way, because it started off as, was it weekly or sort of fortnightly? I think it was fortnightly. Fortnightly, but it later went to monthly. Yeah. And at that point, it didn't become any less puerile, but it got more, a bit more sophisticated in its style. Yeah. And that was largely down to, this is so weird, this, somebody called Charlie Brooker. Yes. Who, at that point, you know, you're probably sitting there thinking, wasn't he a bit young? Yes, he was. He yeah. was about 14 when he was writing and drawing for Oink. Yeah. But he was coming up with all this hilarious, really insightful stuff. I mean, one thing that always stayed with me was his Radio Times parody, Radio Swines, 
Well, it was just so... It wasn't just attacking the programmes. It was attacking, you know, the predictableness of scheduling. Because now there's a, a tedious black and white film set in a Broadway theatre was on in the afternoon with, uh, I think it was Horace Theatre Manager and Cecil Rival Theatre Manager. That's right. You'd have never have guessed it was from a kid around your age. No, you, know? you see, I, I had no idea. It's so weird to think that, you know, because I was, qu- I was quite, in some ways an offbeat kid in that respect. I sort of saw humour where I don't think many other people did at that age. I'm not saying that as a show-off thing. I think it made people think it was a bit weird, really. But I really latched onto his stuff. And had I known at that time that he was around the same age as me, that would have made a really big difference to me, I think. Yeah, and again, it goes back to your, your mother wouldn't like it kind of thing. It's like people your age being really silly and um, engaging with you on your level and not talking down to you or making you feel like this... You know, not being grown-ups talking down to you. It's just something that's really important when you're at that age, I think. Well, I remember, because it was quite a big thing for, in our house, like, I used to get it, but everyone used to read it. And I know my younger sister still goes on about, I mean, how stupid was this strip? I think it was one of the ones drawn by Mark Riley, who a lot of people probably know better as Lard from Mark and Lard. Mm. But there was a one-shot strip about a man who went to sleep, and it's... it's <laughs> His ears suddenly jumped off his head and said, come on, nose. And they ran around his face playing football. That's right, said, yeah. Oh, oh, he's waking up, get back into place. It was like a weird sort of like body horror bag puzzle almost. And, and it, it, one of the ears went back where his nose should be. And he woke up going, ah! And we still refer to that, like about, probably about once a month. And there's so many things I just remember laughing hysterically at. There was Police Vet and the Foxy Chick, which is a send-up a shaft, which I really like, especially because they shot the man singing theme from Police Vet and Foxy Chick halfway through because they were sick of him. And there was Ham Dare, which was a Dan Dare thing with pigs. That was always good. And there was one where he was, I can't remember his name, which is annoying me. There was one where he's literally just a head. Oh, Harry the Head. That was, a, that was a Mark Riley one as well. Yeah, it was just think, really, really anarchic and funny things. And Tony Husband did a lot of it as well. He did, yes, yeah. And he went on to do Round the Bend with the guys from Spitting Image, I think. Yes, it was, yeah. Because all the voices were the guys from Spitting Image. There was John Glover and Enrightle and Kate Robbins. And again, that was uh, something as a child. I was watching Spitting Image then, not understanding any of it, of course. And then Round the Bend started and it was like, oh, oh, they've done something for kids. And Round the Bend was just brilliant. It was um, puppets and it had cartoons and, again, very culturally aware and taking the mickey out of things the funny thing about wink by the way is that um i was telling my kids about it I and mean, my son's into comics and stuff and he said oh you should get one and I, I had one in the loft that i'd rescued from my mum and dad's house when they moved and i brought it down and it was just oh all the references in here you'd have to be nine years old in 1985 to understand and there was a whole comic strip about taking the mickey out of the professionals <laughs> I thought there's just too much context there. It's too heavy to tell a child now. Well, the thing is, why that's funny is it was a program about 30, 40 years ago. So, yeah, that's difficult. So it hasn't aged well in that respect. But it's one of those things that's just very important to you and your sort of formative development. Yeah, because Round the Bend was sort of a similar premise, wasn't it? Was that Doc Rock ran the magazine? Yeah, and he had like a little, oh, I want to say it was like a little... um, gopher type thing and there was a potato that read the news well i've often wondered if that spun out from this is something very few people remember was spitting image tried to jump on the oink bandwagon with the giant spitting image comic with a k book i don't remember that at all nobody remembers that it had a had a strip parodying doris stokes in it 
there was Jesus. merchandise horse battle for the pocket money, which is a Transformers send-up, <laughs> which I quite liked. Because that didn't take off. I've always wondered if that did inform Round the Bend, if they just thought, oh, you know what, we'll just do it as a TV programme, we're not going to yeah. launch a successful comic. Well, that would make sense, because Round the Bend was effectively a movie, a video comic. You had the little, it was like oink, you had, like you say, you had the same format, you had a, the editor-type person, and then you'd quickly jump into little sketches and cartoons. I, I've spoken to Tony about this, that he told me, and I should probably tell you as a, as a part of a service, if you go to Tony's website, all the episodes are on there. Well, there you go, listeners. But uh, before you do that, go and listen to some Smirsh pods. That's what I'm going to say. I look forward to doing Oink pods as well. But anyway, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, so. Thank you. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org. 